Welcome to a very special episode of Once Upon a Disney, an analytical yet fun-loving look at Disney narrative filmography from the 20th century. I'm Andy Redwine, and with me as always is a professor who gives them the old brazzle-dazzle, Larry Brenner. How are you, Larry? I'm good, Andy. How are you doing? I'm swell. Say we've got some special guest stars. Yes, uh, we have about 75 to 80 special <laughs> guest stars, because uh, we are at Spalding University. Woo! In the ELC. <laughs> You know, a total aside, this podcast was birthed from my ECE here at Spalding, and Larry, you were my mentor for that, so it must have been a decent paper. It must have been. It must have been. So we kept each other going during the pandemic with Disney movies. Uh, Disney Plus had just launched, and one day we decided we sort of needed a larger audience. And the thing that we've discovered in doing this is, generally speaking, when we take apart the movies in this way, first of all, the reason we do Disney movies is we love Disney movies, but we don't blindly love Disney movies. Like, sometimes we love them because they're wonderful, and sometimes we love them but, right? But what we've generally found out is, like, by taking it apart this way, generally a craft lesson emerges for us, something that we can incorporate and take back into our own writing. We don't always know what it is, but it is in every episode that we've done, it's emerged. And I'm excited to see what emerges in this conversation. Yeah, there's definitely some value in our own writing in this reverse engineering process. So three seasons and nearly 9,000 downloads later, we think we might have something. So we might. what movie are we taking a look at today, Larry? We are doing 1977's Pete's Dragon. I hope they've seen it. Oh, yeah, I hope so, too. (laughs) Okay, well, so at the end of this podcast, we're going to invite our Spalding friends to ask a few questions about Pete's Dragon, and who knows, we might have a few answers. Do you have any key facts for us, Andy? I do have some key facts to get this party started. So in March of 1958, Walt Disney decided to create a two-episode story for the Disneyland television show. It was based on a short story by screenwriters Seton Miller and S.S. Field. And for whatever reason, it just wasn't hitting. It wasn't landing. And, and Disney just didn't think the story was quite ready for prime time and decided to sit on the property, and so it shelved. Ten years later, in 1968, the idea is briefly resurrected, and there's some buzz and some energy about it, but then it finds its home back on the shelf in the Burbank studio. However, in 1975, the project found some more energy. The idea was really to create new Disney material in the vein of Mary Poppins. So Oscar-winning soundtrack writers Al Kasha and Joel Hirshhorn hired onto the project to round out a screenplay by Malcolm Mammerstein. They brought Candle on the Water to the pitch. They had written it for the pitch, and Disney liked it so much, they're like, let's build a whole film around it. And the rest is history. So take heart, friends. It might take 25 years to get a picture going. (laughs) Shall we dump into it? Yeah, let's go. Larry, we always start every episode by talking about the Manish Tana. So let's let's talk about the Manish Break Tana it down. a little bit. So if you've ever taken, done a mentorship with me, I'm, I'm fond of talking about the Manish Tana. The Manish Tana comes from the holiday of Passover. When we're doing the four questions, we usually begin by saying uh, the Manish Tana, which is why is this night different from all other nights? And when we apply this to a movie, what we're generally asking is the movie could open at a number of different places. Why do we choose this specific moment to be the moment that's going to open up this movie? Pete's Dragon, I think, has a very interesting Manish Tana. We open up, Pete is already escaping the Gogan family. Mid-escape, he already has his dragon. And I'm wondering, why do we start here? 
And especially when you consider, I think in more modern screenwriting, we would follow a little bit more of a Harry Potter model here, which is we would see Pete living with the Gogans. We would see Pete first meeting Elliot for the first time, and then we would get into the escape. Instead, we start with the escape and they already know each other. I was wondering, Andy, do you have any thoughts on this? I do have some thoughts about this. I'm, I'm going to back up even further, though. Okay. Uh, because the opening notes of Pete's Dragon before launching into Candle in the Water sound exactly like Mary Poppins. They do. It's the same tones. And so, and like Poppins, there's this painting of the movie setting for the audience to enjoy as we settle in with our popcorn and junior mints, right? So, but once the movie really starts in earnest, with about eight seconds, there's this dark woods... There's a young boy writing something invisible and whispering to it, and I want to know what it is. Right. So it's a great hook. Look, we've come to see a movie called Pete's Dragon. Like, if we're going to tease out the fact that, like, there's going to be a dragon in it at some point. We had the same conversation just last week about Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Honey, shrink I Shrunk the Kids already. Yes. Shrink them. It takes 20 minutes to shrink those kids. We Absolutely. know it's coming. We, like, could you imagine they never get shrunk? Um, but here we start right off with the dragon. I, I think that's right. Yeah. I also think there's another reason we start here, which is this is a musical comedy. And unlike Harry Potter, we're not going to have like some serious dramatic moments coming through where we reflect on really what it was like for Harry to live at Privet Drive. Those opening chapters in Harry Potter are pretty dark in pretty much every one. Do we really want to see this cute little kid poorly treated by the Gogan family? If we do see it, do we need to have Pete being carrying the weight of how terribly he was treated by the Gogans throughout the movie. By starting us here at the escape, where Pete already has somebody who loves him, I think, I think the writers are saying, listen, Pete is going to be in an emotionally okay place for this movie. We don't have to think about the ugly stuff that must have happened at the Gogan farm. We can just sit back and enjoy ourselves as we enter Passamaquoddy. And here's the song. It's a musical, and the song's driving the story because we know that the Gogans are mistreating him just by the lyrics, right? But, I, so I think that's the reasoning behind the decision. But I think it interferes with story structure a little bit. A little bit. So let's get into structure. We start in terms of exposition. And we're trying to learn about what life was like for Pete. And I think the movie does something really smart here with the opening song, which is something about family. Uh, the happiest home happiest in these hills. That's the right. The happiest home in these hills. They deliver to us the idea basically that while the Gogans say they're willing to like treat Pete really well, it's like so there are these lines that they're singing to Pete and then they're immediately juxtaposed with what they're really thinking. Right. Right? Like they're like, you know, I'll bring you lemonade, I'll make you breakfast in bed, and then like we're gonna work this kid. Right? And it tells us everything we need to know about who the Gogans are and how they've been treating Pete and what their relationship is and why Pete's not falling for it, right? And we also have this moment where Elliot saves, I mean, it's kind of almost like a mini movie yeah. at the beginning where Elliot ends up saving Pete from the Gogans in that little and hides him away in that bit. But there's some information that we just never get. We know that Pete and Elliot found each other. I don't know when that happened. Yeah. I never find out when that happened. 
I don't know why it happened. I don't know what was the moment that caused that event to occur. And that seems like a lost place of high drama, right? Yeah. Where, you know, something really awful is happening and here comes the superhero dragon to save the day. Right. Like, what, what is it? We don't, we don't see him. He doesn't write the letter that, um, that Gene and Michael Darling do about, you know. Gene and Michael Banks. Bank Michael Banks. Wrong, wrong nursery. <laughs> um, <laughs> We don't see any of that. Right. It's just coming packaged in. And for me, this is going to be one of the tricky parts about this movie is, in theory, this movie is about a boy and his dragon. But they're not giving us any of the backstory about how that relationship really formed, what the early days of those rela that relationship was, was like. They are now so comfortable and adjusted with each other we're starting, just like we're starting the movie in the middle, we're starting their relationship in the middle. What I do you think. think about the inciting incident of this movie? I, okay. Sometimes, <laughs> she knows my answer to this. Sometimes in a movie, it's so clear what the inciting incident is, and I think that is the best practice. When I have my, you know, my screenwriting class, my college, my college level intro to film class, I always tell them, if you tell me the inciting incident happened before the movie started, you're wrong. <laughs> but this movie, <laughs> I mean, like, like I want to say the inciting incident of this movie is Pete meets Elliot, but it doesn't happen in this movie. That's because they already know each other. They know no, each I think, other. I, I think the movie wants the inciting incident to be a stranger comes to town, right? Where Pete and Elliot show up in Passamaquoddy. They want people to like them. And then there's this dramatic question, are Pete and, and Elliot going to be accepted here? I like that you use the words, I think that's what the movie wants us to think <laughs> the inciting incident is. Right. Except this movie is also not about Pete's relationship with Passamaquoddy. It's set in Passamaquoddy, it's the setting, but Passamaquoddy really could be just about anywhere. There's nothing special about Passamaquoddy. Is there a place where he can hide? Because I mean, really, it's can he get away from the Gogans, right? That's what we want. And it's like, oh, he's, now he wants to be accepted in this town. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna throw out three options here, and, and guys, I don't have a final answer. <laughs> so one option is we could say, today is the day we're watching because today is the day that Pete escaped the Gogans. Right? I don't really think that's the inciting incident of this movie. That actually feels like the climax of some other movie, previously on Pre Pete's Dragon. Um, <laughs> but we could make the case for that. Andy already made the case for Passamaquoddy. I don't think it is. We could make the case for Nora meeting Pete being the inciting incident, because I think that really is the most important relationship of this movie. But that happens about a half hour in, their relationship, I like it, I like Nora, I like Pete, it is not dynamic. It is, it is- No, it's definitely just, missing some tension. They like, just take to each other. It's so easy is the song, and it's so easy how they all come, kind of sort of come together. There just aren't the obstacles that we want, that so, I want. So here is my answer, and it's a terrible answer. Are you ready? <laughs> yes. Because this doesn't happen till about 45 minutes into the movie. I think the inciting incident is Dr. Terminus learns that dragons are real. And that really is what gets the movie sparking because suddenly things have changed. No one believed really that Elliot existed, but now there's this guy who is determined to catch Elliot and that is different 
No one, no one has ever tried to tame the dragon before. And I think it's the best answer. The problem really is, it's so late in the movie, it also can't be the inciting incident. It's almost like we're watching this movie and Dr. Terminus comes in and we're like, who is this guy? Yeah, I mean, he comes in at the, probably about act two, that's late. I looked like the Gogans were going to be the main antagonist yeah. up until then. And so, somebody's like, okay, you guys, <laughs> you're not getting the antagonist function done. So welcome, enter Dr. Terminus, who I love. I we love, love Dr. this. Terminus. Okay, we love this movie, okay? And again, just kind of looking at it and thinking about it. it let me ask you this. Is it structured more like a stage musical than a movie? This is a stage musical. That really is the issue here. Even the dance numbers are set up as if the audience watching it is live and getting the energy for it. There's that scene in the bar where Nora's dancing on, on the beer keg. And by the way, why is she doing that? <laughs> <laughs> she, she goes into the bar. She goes into the bar to get her dad and bring him home. And then she starts kicking the kegs, and fine, I'm with her character here. She's like, she's like, I'm against all this stuff you're doing. Then she gets up on the keg, and suddenly she's like, you know what? I'm having a great time. I'm going to dance. She's, she's codependent, Larry. That's and, what it is. And like, they all start dancing with her, and it's like, you have lost the thread. Don't know. Don't know. <laughs> but anyway, um, so, uh. so taking a look at all of this, I'm like, yeah, it's a stage musical where, where people come in and you, they almost like want to take their bow as yeah. they come in. Like yeah. they want us to all applaud because we recognize them as a celebrity. You can almost you can almost see them trying to feel. I love this movie, <laughs> but the energy is off. They are stage actors performing for a stage audience that is not there. They're not they're not really in on the science of how do I connect with a film audience. And there are way too many songs for a movie. Uh, and there are, we'll get to the music later. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that happens in this film routinely, too, is that they're often telling us what happened. Yes. So they're often saying things like, well, back then we did this, or remember when we had this, or... Show us! Yes. So Just do it! Don't tell us remember when. I can't see that. This is a movie. You have the opportunity to show us these right. things. Right, and they think they're limited by a soundstage, and perhaps they are. To yeah. be very fair, perhaps they are because of the mechanicalness. I mean, we, we are so spoiled in this day and age with CGI, right? Um, Privileged. The, mechanical, the mechanicalness of Elliot requires there's this machine yes. and all this stuff and we've got to put it in this kind of space and so how do we tell a story with those kinds of limitations yes and i'm sure i think they could have gotten more creative agreed to, to solve those let's, problems let's get through plot let's do it so considering we don't know where the inciting incident is it's going to be hard to identify what's the rising action because some of the rising action must be exposition but i'm just going to take us through the story beats up until we get to the climax, question mark, because I have questions about that too. So rising action, Pete comes to Passamaquoddy. He comes there with Elliot. Elliot immediately makes a mess of everything. Lampy sees Elliot. This is still rising action, but Lampy is drunk and not necessarily a reliable witness. Stuff happens. Most importantly, I think Pete meets Nora. And Nora's like, hey, the rest of the town doesn't seem to like this kid, but I'm going to protect him and take the kid in. Uh, she tries to get Pete to go to school, but Elliot ruins that 
also, the movie isn't going anywhere. And then they say, like, well, let's put an antagonist in, and in comes Dr. Terminus. He sails into the movie, and he is a breath of fresh air. I just, like, I, lo I love him. He comes in, he's fantastic. Again, takes his sweet time to learn about Elliot. Two things suddenly happen at the same time. The Gogans make a play to get Pete back from Nora, at the same time that Dr. Terminus learns that there is in fact a dragon in this town, and that then he does some research. I'm not quite sure where his research comes from. I want to believe that that book is the same book that Eglatine from Bedknobs and Broomsticks is reading. I love that, yes. They're in the same correspondence course. Yes. That's what I've decided. Well, and then he That's trapped. I mean, like, that is quite a ship that he's, like, sailing through yes. town, right? And he, he you know, it he comes in. Like, he comes in. I mean, they even make jokes about it. Like, why don't we have horses? I'm tired of telling people. It is a fantastic horses, entrance, right? though. I, yeah. think, I think it is as almost as good as Mary Poppins floating in by umbrella. Yeah. I mean, he makes a magical entrance into this town. The movie doesn't need a dragon, really. It needs this con man more than it needs a dragon, I think. That being said, so he does discover that there's a dragon. He makes, starts to make plans. He tries to buy the dragon off Pete. He tries to make plans to do it. Where would you say, Andy, the climax of this movie is? Oh, boy. Because, because wow. Okay. All right. All right. So we have Terminus and the Gogans, and they're using Pete as bait to catch Elliot. So normally when we right. talk about the climax, and I just want to make this yes. point, we're talking about the moment of highest tension. Often in a movie, not always, but in this one, often the climax is the place where the forces of good and evil contend right. with one right. another. So right? we, have, we have Terminus, and he's teamed up with the Gogans, and now... It is that battle of good versus evil. And Elliot spoiled their plans. He saves Pete. He burns up the bill of sale. He sends the Gogans packing, right? Terminus is caught in his own snare with a goofy Yahoo, by the way. Just a little nugget there. And the medicine carts sent packing, of course. And, and then Elliot saves the town folk from electrocution, which I didn't know that was a threat of Passamaquoddy, but apparently it is. And uh, then Elliot lights the wick, and Nora's a believer. Okay, so those are two separate things, though. So I want to all these get into things, this. but they're all these. It's kind of this. Let's wrap it up. How do we wrap up all of these stories? We've created this mess. How do we do it? How do we get out okay. of it? Okay, and I'm going to say unsatisfying climax. Okay, and here's why it's unsatisfying. The thing that is supposedly happening for the first time in this movie is Elliot is going to be put in danger. Elliot has been Pete's protector this whole movie. And now, now instead of like going for Pete, they're going for Elliot. And we're supposed to really be worried for this dragon. Dr. Terminus is an X factor that is disrupting this entire story. Elliot is defeated because... Dr. Terminus screws up his plan. He has his foot in the rope. Like, it's not through the actions of our heroes that Elliot and Pete are okay. It's just dumb villainy. It's just dumb luck. If Pete had wrapped the rope around Dr. Terminus's foot and we could make a meal out of, their roles have reversed previously it was always Elliot protecting Pete, but now we have a moment where Pete is protecting Elliot. That's what we want, 
right? That's where this movie has to go. Pete has become stronger. Pete is now capable of standing up to villains. Pete becomes finally the hero in his own story. But instead, it's just like, this is, I like Dr. Terminus, but in terms of how he is defeated, this is like watching Rabbit from Winnie the Pooh try to get a plan done. You know, like Rabbit will tell Piglet, you're going to be the heavy in this plan. It's a terrible plan. It's poorly executed. It requires too many parts. And it just, the problem is his plan doesn't work, not because of our heroes. It's just a bad plan. And it's an unsatisfying climax. But then the movie might say to you, but there's a second climax. Right. And this second climax is... Paul is coming into harbor, and he might crash on the rocks. And we have our hero do the function of being, you know, a Zippo lighter. Yeah. Like, he, he breathes. It's, it's just, this movie is not invested. Which I never thought, I never knew, I mean, again, it's a sort of a missed opportunity, right? Because you have this wick, and did you know the wick could get wet and wouldn't be able to burn? No. That's not set up at all. No. So like uh, my knowledge of lighthouse keeping is Right. I mean not... I think I think I think there's maybe people in nineteen seventy seven knew a whole lot more about lighthouses than they do now. It was the talk of the town. Yeah, I'm sure it was. But yeah, there was just I think, you know, when that happens it's like he's stuck and then there's all this stuff and they're you know. I guess what we're also learning is, in addition to the villains being bad at their job, the lighthouse keeper is bad at his job. <laughs> How is he not prepared for what happens when your whole job is if there's a storm, you're prepared to bring the ship in safety. This is, this is what you've been training for. And this is why, this is why the lighthouse system is being abandoned. Pete's Dragon makes the case. They show it in Congress every time they want to close a lighthouse. They're see, like, it is. do you yep. see these lighthouse keepers? Yep. Let's, let's talk about falling action for a minute. This falling action I have referred to as a, it's a Baptist altar call. What do you mean by that? Well, we have Paul and he comes, here he comes and the town's getting fish again. Paul comes in and Nora's so excited to see him. And then Paul gives his pitch as to what happened to him. And, and he's have, been saved. And this is how he's been saved. Okay. So let, let's talk about Paul's story for a little bit. He was on a ship. The ship wrecked. He was the only survivor. He was found and put in a hospital, but he had amnesia at the hospital. Conveniently. I mean, what is this guy's story? Why aren't we watching this movie? <laughs> this, is, this is like, he says this so matter of fact, and like, I actually would like it if this monologue he gives was 15 minutes long. And he's like, and then, and then there was a curse put on me, <laughs> which put a curse on me. Uh, I was in the belly of a whale. Uh, there's so many reasons why he didn't make it and back then, to Nora. And of course, Pete is like, well, but that's Elliot, right? And it's like, okay, well, I could have seen that. That would have been awesome. But the bottom line is we don't care why Paul wasn't there, right? No. Like the movie's like, here's where we're going to have to put in the story logic. We have to explain why Paul never made it back. But we don't, we don't care about that. No. That's not what's important. Paul isn't a character in this movie. He's a MacGuffin. He's a thing we got to find. He's a thing we got to get to. We don't even see Elliot go out and find Paul, which I think is another opportunity to do some dramatic stuff. It all happens 
off screen. But again, we hear about it, we don't see it, and it takes away the Unsatisfying. opportunity for drama. But then there might be the thing that someone might say is the emotional climax of this movie, which isn't necessarily plot, but it's the moment of most emotional tension, which is Elliot says to Pete, he's got to go, yeah. right? And none of us want that. Right? Like, if you're watching this, you don't want Elliot to go, but there's other kids out there, and Pete lets him go, and they still love each other, and Elliot is crying. Is Elliot a Poppins? So, I want to talk about this when we get to Elliot. Okay. Because I have a theory about it, and it's dark. I'm sure you do. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, let's jump into characters. Okay, let's do it. Yeah. Do you want to start with Elliot? Yeah, we can start with Pete. So, Sean Marshall... He's the only cast member in this movie who isn't really known well in 1977. I think it's really important when you watch these movies to like think about what audiences were watching at the time they were watching it. And so now we watch Pete's Dragon and we're like, wow, these are these are some of the like heavy hitters in Hollywood. These are classic film stars. And in 1977, these people are hacks. Like it's like they're past their prime. They gathered them all together, and here they are. They were smart and paired them with Helen Reddy, who is, it's hard to understate how big of a star Helen Reddy is in 1977. All right. So I want to actually talk about Pete and Nora together, if I can, just because we're going to get a little tight on time here. Yeah, sure. So Pete and Nora are both good people. They're both kind people. They're both flawless people. They are not protagonists that are invested with a flaw. And I would say that if there's an issue with these characters in this movie, and I think that there is, it's that when they meet, they are peanut butter and jelly. They go great together. But neither of them needs to change or change their worldview or work to accommodate them each other. I mean, they're both outliers in, a, in Passamaquoddy, right? Passamaquoddy is sort of a straight-laced conservative community, right? And they don't really fit and so I think that's where Nora and Pete make it together. I'm, I'm with it. I believe them together. However, you're right. You have to have a flaw in your character in order to have that good character arc where they're moving. Generally speaking, in a movie, we have this character whose last experience with a family was terrible. He should not be ready to trust yet. Yes. At the same time, Nora has just experienced a loss, or what she believes to be a loss. She should not be ready to open up her heart yet. And we should have an experience where these two characters, through meeting each other, overcome these flaws and heal. And we see hints of that, right? We see that, hints that of thing it. in the cave where it's like, I've got some chowder on the stove, and she reaches out her hand. And, you know, there's Nora is great immediately. She is great immediately. I want her to see like, why are you in my cave? Like, why are you in my lighthouse? She sees the kid in the cave and she's like, that's it. I'm adopting him. Yeah. It's it's like it's that fast. She's me. She's (laughs) she totally is you, Andy. She is. Okay. All right. (laughs) Let's talk about Elliot. Okay. So here's my thing about Elliot. What is his deal? Okay, because like interestingly enough, so nineteen again, nineteen seventy-seven. Like you see a character, you don't see him. The kid sees him, but nobody else does. I immediately go to Mr. Snuffleupagus on Sesame Street. Except he's not imagined. I mean, Mr. Snuffleupagus, you may not remember, was imaginary in nineteen seventy-seven. He was not real at that time. Right, but. Elliot is demonstrably real. We see his footprints. Everyone in town seems to believe in him except for Nora. Like, they'll, they'll all have their moments where, like, there's no dragon, and two seconds later, there's a dragon. It doesn't take them long. What is his deal? And when I say what is his deal, I mean this. 
On the one hand, we could apply the Mary Poppins model to Elliot. When a kid's in trouble, he either gets assigned a Victorian nanny or a dragon. Um, <laughs> in some cases, two small mice. You get what you get and you don't get upset. <laughs> but so in theory, the movie ends on this note like, Elliot was sent to Pete for this purpose, to get Pete to safety, to get him into a family, to get him loved. Except Elliot does a terrible job of this. <laughs> Elliot gets him to Passamaquoddy and immediately makes Pete a pariah in Passamaquoddy. Pete goes to school, this is a good thing, Elliot sabotages that too. Yes, Elliot defends him from the teacher, but Elliot caused the problem in the first place. Well, and there's this weird fundamental shift between them, right? So in the beginning, Elliot's the savior, right? Yes. And then all of a sudden it becomes a boy and his dog movie. It does. So here is my theory at the end of the movie. All right, this is dark. When Elliot says he has to go, there's another boy in trouble. There is no other boy in trouble. <laughs> Elliot has realized that he is a problem for Pete, that he's now getting in Pete's, this is dark, but, but if you think about it, Dr. Terminus coming in is now bringing, like Dr., there are other Dr. Terminus, Termini uh, in the world. I was gonna say Terminuses. There are other people out there, now that the dragon has been revealed, the town knows there's a dragon, that is the danger for Pete is this dragon will continually bring in more people who want to exploit the dragon, and the best thing he can do for Pete is to leave. And is Elliot going to look for another boy in trouble? I think he is. But I don't think I can buy that he was divinely sent to Pete and be so bad at the job he needs to do. Right. And I actually like it better if Elliot is making a decision that because he's met Pete, his new life goal is to go around the world protecting children. He decided that. He wasn't created to do it, but now he's inspired to do it. He does not have the language skills to communicate this effectively, but I like it better. I like it better than him being a Poppins. Yeah, let's jump into Lampy as a character with Mickey Rooney. I think Lampy is such a, a great character because Mickey first of all, no, this is Helen Reddy's first movie, right? Mm -hmm. She's never been to film before. Mickey Rooney's acting skills, like, he acts for her, too. <laughs> like, he is so good. Like, he is working both sides He's of the He's taking good character. care of her. He's taking very good care of her. And just, I mean, it is, he is lobbing softballs. It's great. Interestingly, so there's this line about you're only, you only see Elliot if you need to see him. But that's and, not true. No, but he's, but Lampy's the first person in Passamaquoddy to see Elliot, which means he needs to see Elliot, right? But then Hoagie needs to see but Elliot. But then Hoagie needs to see Elliot, and we never really know why they needed to see him. It kind of works as subtext as, you know, they're alcoholics who need support. They don't really get there. I, I'm, they need to straighten up, right? I mean, and yeah, I, I'm with you. Here's my issue with Lampy. As fun as it is to take a look at the funny, funny alcoholic who's drinking for breakfast as the kids are going to school and to laugh at him, like, it's not really funny, right? It's sad. It's something that I think the... So here's what I'd like to change for Lampy. Are you ready? I think this would be good. Lampy shouldn't be Nora's father. Lampy should be Paul's father. 
If Lampy is Paul's father and Nora is taking care of him because there is a tenuous connection to Paul, like he was going to be her father-in-law, but it never happened. But now all they have is each other. And she's trying to be strong and cling to the hope that Paul will come back. But Lampy's given it up. It creates all they've got is each other. But it's not a relationship that is is going to be okay. When he goes to get her at the bar, she could be like, you're not my daughter. And she's like, I would have been. There's opportunity so, for conflict, right? Yes, conflict. And then Which when is what Pete, this movie is really missing. Then when Pete comes in, we get two things. Like, we get the relationship between Pete and Nora, and, and as I spelled out earlier. But for Lampy, seeing Pete is like getting Paul back. Right. He starts to remember what it's like to, to take a, care to of a, a little boy. Yeah. Maybe he has some of Paul's old clothes and he gives that and it helps him to come out of the funk that he's in. I think this movie does not want to be as dramatic as I think I want it to be. But I think doing that invests the movie with a little bit more. Heart. What I love about a movie is found family. I love the theme of found family. It's why I love the Muppets. I love people who, when they meet each other, make each other better. So let's quickly get through the Gogans and Dr. Terminus. So I love Jim Dale. If you're a fan of the Harry Potter audiobooks, Jim reads them and does like 300 voices. You should check that out. Terminus is a great character, but like as you mentioned, he comes way late. The Gogans, we see them in the beginning, and then we don't really see them until the end again, which it would be nice to see them throughout. And they don't really foil our main characters neatly. No. In theory, Nora and Mama Gogan should be foils. Right. They have different ideas towards motherhood. And they do sing that one song at each other, but they don't know each other previously. Their relationship is all through a conduit of Pete. I will say, though, Dr. Terminus Right. He would, would make any movie better. I want to see him go up against Mary Poppins. I want to see him fight Merlin. And I want to see him romance Madame Mim from The Sword and the Stone. Absolutely. Yes. There is no, I, I, I just wonder if the thing that I learn about this movie is you need your antagonist to come on the scene with a dynamic presence and like chew the scenery a little bit and really make the movie his own. I think he does that. I think he does that really. He would be great in the Herbie movies. Yeah, he's great. Every time he's on screen, like I'm, I am watching. When in the places where this movie drags, however, and yeah. it does drag, nine times out of ten, it's really because of a protagonist problem. Because Larry, I don't think this movie knows who its protagonist. It has is. no protagonist. Everyone is a protagonist, or no one is a protagonist. <laughs> Pete's not the protagonist. He learns and he does not learn or grow. His circumstances change. Elliot doesn't seem to learn and grow. Nora doesn't seem to learn Larry, and grow. I just thought of this. This movie is a vaudeville show. It is. That's it is. what this movie is. It's a vaudeville show. It's meant for an audience that isn't going to probe it the way that we're going to probe it. That's right. That's exactly right. We're not supposed, we're not supposed to look behind the curtain here. Well, in the vein of vaudeville, let's talk about the music. A couple of these like drive the story, and some of them do not. Yes. So I think in a musical, we have to have songs that drive the story. So Happiest Home in These Hills, brilliant, perfect. Yep, does what it needs to do. I Love You Too. Eh, it's we already know they love we, each other. We absolutely know, because, yeah, we don't have to beat that over the head. I Saw a Dragon is great. It's beautiful, 
Candle on the Water, which you said this movie was was made for. Yes. Drags. Oh, yeah. It is my least. I am not here for this. <laughs> like like where uh, uh, it just drags. It doesn't tell us anything. We. It's. The torch song, uh, the candle song. Uh, it's a song about love, but oof. You know what song I love? Brazzle Dazzle Day. You do love Brazzle Dazzle and Day. And I would argue Brazzle Dazzle Day is fluffy and silly. What sells Brazzle Dazzle Day is watching those three actors dance in sync, and you realize this is not really about Brazzle Dazzle Day. This is them celebrating that they've become a family. Yep. And I think if you just take the song at its lyrics... It's not that particularly exciting. It's got a cool tune. But when you see it and you watch them and all three of them are doing the moves and helping each other out and they're all working on the lighthouse with a smile, you're like, these people are healed. Yeah. Too early because we got another 45 minutes. <laughs> but, I, but I do enjoy that. Well, there was, there was some criticism about this film with There's Room for Everyone in This World because the film was very white. I mean, movie critics. Especially for a movie that has a song, There's a Room for Everyone. Right, exactly. Like, like you got to walk the walk here. Right. I absolutely love the uh, Passamaquoddy. I think Jim Dale does a great job with that. It's so funny. I mean, it's... If you've got a three-year-old, they're going to think it's fun. I like how that one guy goes through the rest of the movie with his hair pink. Uh, like after the reveal, you can just see him walking around with that pink hair. I love that. Super, That's super a great, great little visual gag. Super great from a super grifter. So should we invite people to yes. ask questions? Do you have any questions? Questions, comments, could us. be about this movie. Could, could be, be about, about podcasting. Oh, here they come. Disney in general. Here they come. Yay. Hello. Hello. So I have an inciting incident question, and it's two parts. The first part is, what should they have done to make it faster? Just bringing Dr. Terminus in earlier? And if so, that kind of leads into the second part, which is a general genre question, not just for movies, but any genre. How do you handle getting the inciting incident out there quickly if you've got a lot of information you want to get out there? Okay, we talked about this. We have talked about this. All right, so this is a great thing. So here's the thing we do with Dr. Terminus. Dr. Terminus needs to have a strong objective from the beginning. He should not be in Passamaquoddy because the winds blew him there. He should be hunting the dragon. He needs to be on board with hunting that dragon from day one. He has been tracking Elliot all over the country. Yes. He's been following them for some time, and he's finally found them. And that way, we don't have to stall out. We don't have to do this slow. First, Hoagie finds, first Lampy finds out that Elliot's real. Then Hoagie finds out. Dr. Terminus needs to come in. Be very, very quiet. I'm hunting dragon, right? Because yeah. if he comes in with that strong motivation, it energizes everything else. He can be doing some amazing detective work, but he's in town to be the antagonist. Let's have him antagonize from the beginning. Absolutely. So now we have the Gogans chasing Pete. We have Terminus chasing Elliot. And we got a movie. I think Terminus needs to be a worthy adversary for Elliot. He really doesn't. He's bumbling. Th- charming as heck. But what it really means is... I I think the answer to this is to get your antagonist to do this. Your antagonist needs strong, compelling forces and needs to come in hunting, hunting for what they want. And the protagonist can't be ready for them. Right. That's how I think I'd answer that one. Yeah. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. I feel like I have a two part question. Well, earlier you said something like this movie doesn't need a dragon. It needs Dr. Terminus, which had me thinking, well, does this movie work without Pete? But then I got sad because I realized that the trap I fall into is I have this great idea, like a boy and a dragon, and then I have to come up with a plot to support my idea. And I was wondering if that's kind of what happened here, and if you do find yourself in that writing hole, 
how do you how do you do that? So you have you have a great answer for this that you gave me yesterday. Okay. So the answer for this is <laughs> Hollywood works backwards. Hollywood does exactly what you're saying, which is it comes up with a gimmick, and then we need says, a boy in his dragon movie. There's right? a boy in his dragon movie, and then like sort of like backward retrofits to get us that boy in its dragon movie. And for me, when I approach jobs, the answer is always about theme. How did the characters learn? What did they learn? What did they get out of it? How did they change and grow? How did they develop? What is the movie about? And when I say, when I say Pete's Dragon is about a boy and his pet dragon, you get what we got. But if I tell you that this is a movie about a boy learning to love again, Right. If what Elliot is there to do is to provide a model of unselfish love for Pete that will prepare him for Nora, that's how you get something a little more sincere, uh, something a little bit more about the human condition. I think that could be there in this movie. And I think maybe it is there, but I've got to squint to see it. Yeah, I've got to squint to see it. Elliot doesn't seem prepared to share Pete with anybody. He's not willing to let Pete go to school. He, they really I mean, treat we him don't like, need Elliot. We just stick him in the cave. Right? It's but but it's all but it's all about like let's get him to set pieces where he yeah. can do goofy things. Yeah. As opposed to following Elliot's emotional life and also that relationship between Pete and Elliot, they really do need to have a breakup and then come back together. Right. There needs to be the moment where Pete says, I wish I didn't have a dragon because he does everything. that. He does that. But, but it's, it's immediate. Too yes. It's immediate and too early. And then, and then it doesn't and make then, sense. It doesn't make sense. Oh, you saved my life. Now get away from me. Right. Right. That, that, that's the movie. You make them you make a meal of them separated for a bit and bring them back together. Every movie is about love. Like, or at least every, every Disney movie should be about love. Redemptive love. Redemptive right? love, yeah. which is a which is like a running gag, because I always say that that's the theme. It's about sacrifice. Nora needs to sacrifice for Pete. Pete needs to sacrifice for Elliot. Elliot needs to sacrifice for both of them. And you make a meal out of the fact that when you love someone, you're willing to give things up for them, right? Without them asking for it. Not, not as a, it's just, that's what this movie is. So if plot comes out of theme. Yes. Right? The, every, it's a stronger every plot. Every story you should be, I feel, if you're going for an emotional beat, you should be like, what is the truth about love that I want to share? And how is this thing that I have a metaphor for expressing it? All right. First, I just want to say thank you so much for discussing this film. I, as someone who has seen very few films in her life, who grew up without television, I rem this movie, I watched it all the time when I was a little kid. So it's very near and dear to my little heart. The second thing I'll say is, I after hearing you all share about this, I am ready for Larry and Andy remake of Pete's Dragon, and I'd be very interested to see that. Well, Disney did that. They did a Pete's Dragon remake. We sometimes do pitches. We weren't going to do that for this, but I'll tell you, like if I was going to do a sequel to this, my sequel would be grown-up Pete finds a baby dragon and has to protect it. Right? You reverse the roles of guardianship. And you make it like Pete is remembering the love he had for Elliot and taking care of this baby dragon. And that's what I would do. My question is um, about character naming. And I'm, I'm curious to know if you all have any thoughts about the significance of the names of the characters. And I'm, and I'm also wondering, you mentioned I grew up in Maine, which is maybe one of the reasons I'm attached to this movie. But maybe one of the reasons that Passamaquoddy is the town is because it just has such an evocative name. But I'm interested in the naming of the characters as well. It's a great name. I mean, we have Pete, we have Elliot. Well, Elliot, we, Elliot at one point was Gabriel in an early script, in an early draft. 
Well, I, I mean, maybe well, because he's an angel. Right. I mean, he's the archangel. Right. Right. I mean, if you want to tell me that Pete and Paul are apostle names, I wouldn't be I wouldn't be surprised that there was something in that. Right. Yeah. Lamp, I, lampy, I think, is kind of obvious, right? Uh, and the Gogans have that great kind of guttural, the Gogans, right? I actually think the name that baffles me the most is why Elliot is named Elliot. And what I want to find out is Elliot's name is not Elliot. That's what Pete named Elliot. There's an opportunity in there. Why did Pete name him Elliot? Mm. I would love to play with that a little bit. Dr. Terminus? I think that is a name he gave himself. I think so, too. I don't, I don't think he's a doctor of anything. <laughs> I, I have actually read his dissertation. <laughs> Peer-reviewed. It's, it's good. Um, He's from Paris. And then, of course, Hoagie yeah. is a sandwich. I think this movie really feels like names are, are about sound, which I appreciate. I, generally speaking, don't like in a movie where we're looking for hidden meanings for names. I think I'm tired of seeing the mad scientist whose last name is Kane, Dr. Kane. Oh, is he going to murder somebody? <laughs> like maybe his brother? Like, like that, that sort of thing. I'm, I'm a little tired of But I do, I do like the idea of names that that sound like the character. And I think Pete is definitely a Pete. And I think Nora is definitely a Nora. Half and the kids in this town answer to the name of Pete, right? Yeah, well, because he's any kid. Right. Right, he's any kid who needed a dragon. And for me, naming is about feeling. The more is about thinking it too much. He feels like a Pete. He's well-named. And Elliot is an Elliot. All righty. I have a quick question. So I remember loving this movie as a kid. And I just rewatched it and was totally bored. And we've just identified all of these flaws, but you guys say you love this movie. So what does it do to overcome these flaws to make kids and you apparently love it? Right. I think for me, honestly, is nostalgia because I mean, I was there, I was at the drive-in theater with my parents in 1977, watching Pete's Dragon in my pajamas. There are all of these warm, fuzzy moments that I was very concerned about the dental hygiene of the Gogans. I had, I think my grandparents were there. They really remembered Mickey Rooney and loved him. And so it was a family thing. So I think for me, it's straight up nostalgia. I'm not sure the movie works now. It's also long. You could put this and cut it. You could cut 30 minutes from this movie Easily. and not miss a thing. Watch this with my youngest son. He made it up until the point that Nora got on the, on the keg and started dancing. And he was like, I can't anymore. And again. And, and he walked out. He and was again, like, he's Larry, like, it's because of the protagonist issue. Yeah. We've been with Pete. We've been with Pete. Who are these people? And what's their relationship to Pete? They don't have a relationship. But my answer for why, why I love this and why I love most Disney movies, even though some of them are less good than others of them, is what I think this movie does do for me is it sparks my belief in magic, the magical happening, the magic of when we can't see Elliot and trying to, as the audience, we have to do work as we're doing this movie. There's mystery. And I think in a modern movie, we would always see Elliot and I kind of like that engagement of my imagination. There's a, I can imagine myself as a little boy saying like, oh, you can't see Elliot? Only me and Pete can see him, Mom. You're watching the movie, but I can see him too. For me, there's a childlike innocence to this movie. And I don't know if you know this about me, but I'm not very mature. Whenever there's something that has childlike innocence to it, 
that for me connects it. There is love for children in the making of this movie. And I always love a movie that loves children. The other part of this movie that's awesome, I think, is the how did they do it? Yeah. You know, I think for me, it's like, how did they make that happen? I mean, now today we've, we've all read articles. We've seen documentaries. We, we know how movie effects work, but there's something magical. I think about here's Pete running the stick along the fence. And then all of a sudden the fence is the going. wet cement, the wet cement. How did they do that? Right. Love so, that. and the fact that they're doing that mechanically, I think is still pretty, pretty lovely, but you're not wrong for experiencing the movie the no. way you experienced no. it. No. Candle on the waters when you go up and get more popcorn. Oh, for sure. All right. Well, we'd like to sincerely thank the folks at Spalding University and the Naslin Mann Graduate School of Writing for assisting us in creating this very special episode. Would you give yourselves a great big round of applause for just being awesome? Thank you so much. This is amazing. Well, if you like what you're hearing, do us a favor and share this podcast with another Disney or classic movie fan. And please check out our Once Upon a Disney Facebook page. Tweet us at, at Andy Redwine or at Larry Brenner 6. You can download all the episodes on iTunes. You can write glowing, and I mean glowing reviews. Drop us a line in our mailbag if you have more questions at Once Upon a Disney Podcast at gmail.com. So until next time, friends, see you real soon. See you real soon.